Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode 614 with my return guest, Jerry Stahl. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit going on in our heads. Uh, This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Um, The website for this show is metalpod.com and metalpod, also the social media handles that you can uh, find us at. Let's uh, dive into some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Twisted Sister. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? Uh, She writes, I can barely stand you anymore. You never progress. You are not creative. Don't even bother trying. You are an idiot. You are lopsided and weird. You have shit for brains. You're a shitty wife, mother, and friend. You can't even manage pets and plants. What the fuck is wrong with you? That's, that is some good drill sergeant going on right there. Thank you for that. Uh, Becky writes about the voice and her, her said that the reasons the bad things have happened to me is because I am an inherently bad person and have never done anything that makes me worthy of happiness and goodness for mothers. Oh, I don't think we've done that one yet. The inherently bad person that deserves, uh, uh, doom and bad things that, oh, uh, where, where are my Catholics at? <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, This is from the love survey filled out by Katie, and she writes, I love getting a long hug from a friend or loved one. I love the smell of pine trees. And then she writes, sometimes I go to Christmas tree farms just to huff and get a bump of serotonin. That is uh, a a great one. And I think for some of us, too, it's a mixed feeling because Christmas might not have been. It's, It's not that Christmas was a bad time for me. It's, it was, I think the, the, the mixed part of Christmas for me is I always felt like I should be enjoying Christmas more than I did. And that itself is kind of the, the thing that, that taints it is the feeling of being an outsider. Like, why do I not feel this joy that other people feel? But that smell of the pine trees, Mm. traveling to a place I've never been before. I love that one. Cheese and chocolate, eating something delicious gives me a bit of a high. And seeing a loved one smile. Those are awesome. Thank you for those, Katie. Uh, From the Voice in Your Head survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself M. 
She writes, uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? Whenever I open up to people about my molestation, I can't help but feel disgusted in myself. I don't know why, I just do. Maybe with time and healing, I'll feel better. Uh, I think that is really, really common, and I myself have struggled uh, with that. And I do think it gets better with time and healing and especially sharing our story and letting people um, comfort us and love us and see us and hear us and validate us. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, From the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who calls himself anal sunshine when she's gone. It's a good one. Some of the things you tell yourself about yourself. I've always had an easy time making friends, and I'll never understand it. I'm not interesting or smart. I'm totally lacking in wit. Tune people out as they're talking to me while I wait my turn to speak, and generally put zero effort into maintaining relationships. In short, I'm a shit friend who doesn't deserve anyone's attention and become uncomfortable when I'm lavished with it. The only attention that I want is that sort of at-arm's-length appreciation as an artist. If someone isn't willing to give me that, I have a hard time drumming up much interest in them. It makes me feel like a narcissistic scumfuck. My life partner has been openly dating a second person for many years now. I never recognized until recently how much it bothered me. It always seemed perfectly sensible and permissible to me because, of course, I wouldn't be enough for her. My parents adopted six children in quick succession after they had me for the same reason. I was never good enough on my own. From age seven onwards, they were never there for me because, of course, my newly acquired special needs siblings should take precedence. Of course, my needs were of no consequence compared to a child born into the throes of crack addiction or one who could not swallow food on their own for the first several years of their life. This has been a nearly lifelong albatross that I cannot shake. And then I tell myself that I'm a selfish piece of shit for even trying to shake it to begin with. Thank you so much for that, man. That uh, we've, we've, we've talked about that a couple of times on the podcast. I can't remember what specific... Um, it might have been Johanna Germa. Uh, and we talked about... Uh, having a, a special needs sibling that took up a lot of attention might have been another guest, but that is something that I, I, I think is so much more prevalent and um, the kind of, you know, quote unquote, ignored child. That's uh, a real mind fuck for them. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Twisted Sister, and she writes Are you as open with your feelings out in the world as you are on your podcast? How do you navigate without feeling like a phony? Uh, I assume those are kind of two separate questions. Uh, I am. uh, I mean, with certain people out in the world, I'm very open with my feelings, uh, with my girlfriend, with my support groups, my therapist, um, even with some of the hockey guys. You know, I've, I've shared a couple of times on the podcast that, like, one of the things I struggle with is a fear of losing uh when i'm when i'm playing hockey and especially a fear of my team being humiliated um and the guy and i'm talking even in just like a game of pickup hockey and i this need to control uh 
comes up in me. I find myself becoming a person I don't like, barking at my teammates, second guessing the, you know, the guy that organizes the teams and says, okay, you play on this team, you play on that team this week. Um, and I, and I opened up to him, uh, last, uh, last Tuesday. And I said, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry that I keep being such a, a control freak. It's something that I, I'm working on. It's like a mental and emotional issue with me that I'm working really hard on, you know, with my therapist. And and he had no idea. He just thought I was a, a dick. And and maybe I am just a, a dick uh, about it. But uh, I felt like opening up to him and letting him know that this is something I'm aware of and this is something that I'm that, that I'm working on would help and I and I think it I think it did and it helps me to say it out loud uh, to remember hey man just you can't control what other people fucking do just focus on what you're doing and try to be the best guy that you can be. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by David D. And about his anger issues, he writes, role-playing arguments in my head with people I don't know about conversations that have never happened. Oh, my God. It's so nice to know that other people struggle with that, too. (laughs) The conversation that will never happen. Indignant resentment about something that may potentially happen, <laughs> what we're going to say, how we anticipate they're going to respond to that. What a fucking waste of time. Thank you for sharing that. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Uh, a big part of, I think, recovery and growing emotionally and mentally as a person is not getting stuck on the problems uh, and instead saying, what are the solutions that I can get into? What are the tools that I can use? And as I share very often on this podcast, um, I like the relationship that I have with my therapist, Heidi, and she really helps me get down to the nitty-gritty every week. What are the issues you're struggling with? Is it productivity? Is it a mean voice in your head? What can we do? You know, What tool can we utilize to, to help you deal with that and, and try to manage or minimize that? And uh, I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. And if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's accessible, affordable, and entirely online. So get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com mental. Do it today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living? as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, 
what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is from the uh, Back in Time survey filled out by a woman who calls herself just a little nuts. Uh, Share a moment in your life where where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. Uh, She writes, I would tell myself, stay away from guys. Love yourself first. When I was young and throughout my life, my parents compared me to my super smart, very obedient Christian friend. Nothing I could do was good enough. I went looking for love in the arms of men. I considered myself purely a sexual being for a long time because only when I was with a man did I feel unconditional love. Take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. Uh, She writes, here's a beautiful flower, Mom. Now watch it wither away and die because you don't feed it what it needs. I am that flower. Why did you choose this person and this gift? Because she should have known better than to treat me like she did. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? I'd be able to read people's minds and intentions, and I'd use my powers as a family psychiatrist. Uh, If you have that superpower, is there something you're afraid might happen? And she writes, I might find out all the negative things I think I think people think about me are actually true. And if that happened, I would die. Yeah, I don't know if I would if I would want to know what people are thinking all the time. But you know what? If somebody said you can have this, I think I would take it. But oh boy, could that ruin some of your days. <laughs> Just hearing somebody, oh, look at that pig faced stupid fuck. He should get hit by a bus. Uh, And then uh, to the question, uh, pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? And she writes, uh, a rainy day when I took my daughter outside to collect worms and get wet in the rain. My mother was furious and told me I needed to bring my daughter in the house. I yelled back to her, this is my daughter and we're doing this try and stop me. The rain never felt so good. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed, but how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling.
and I'm suddenly feeling horrible about making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I'm here with the return guest, Jerry Stahl, who's uh, an author. A lot of you probably know him from his his many books, and uh, probably the thing people know you most for was uh, being the author of the book Permanent Midnight, which was made into a Ben Stiller movie. Would, correct. Would, would that be correct? Yeah. Probably, yeah. yeah that yeah. or maybe I Fatty. I Fatty, about Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. I got to read that because he, what a fascinating character and a fascinating time. Well, oddly enough, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, if I can drop a name immediately mm-hmm. within 30 seconds, was going to play the lead character. And he had this take on it that like, man, people think they got the real you in your memoir, but this is like you putting on a fat suit, a fat suit and writing a memoir because it's really about you being a completely oh. fucked up feeling, lonely degenerate the, the self-loather. Author. Yeah, but under the guise of writing right. about somebody else. Right, let me it project a, it all on him. Well, it was Use a fake him. memoir. Right. So it was him oh, it writing was. in the first person. Oh, okay. Thinly disguised version of myself. Gotcha. So there, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you got a book out right now called 999, which is, uh, as in the German word, 999. And uh, the the full title is One Man's... Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. I'm, I'm going to have you read just a, a little blurb from it, but uh, set, set this up, if you would. Sure. The premise of this book uh, was that I was so fucking depressed in about eh, 2016 or so, well, mostly my whole life, but it really got bad. Uh, you know, marriage is going south, career in the gutter, you know, the whole fucking thing had to move. And uh, I thought, Jesus Christ, where is the one place on earth where complete despair and utter just disillusionment is wholly appropriate? I know. Why don't I go visit some concentration camps? So (laughs) I got. Sorry to laugh. Hey, you know, I got uh, Vice Magazine to cover me to uh, the expenses to do a six-part series, which was good, bad part, it was by bus. It was a bus tour of the Holocaust with, uh, as the title implies, with a bunch of strangers, some of whom had never even seen a Jew. So that's the background. Some of the things that the vignettes that you share in there are are quite jaw-dropping, the inappropriateness of things that, like if you saw in a movie some of the things that people said in the museums, you would think yeah. nobody would have the yeah. lack of yeah. compassion and tact to say that out loud, maybe think it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll ask you to talk about those after you read this passage, sure. especially, I think it was it was either Buchenwald or Auschwitz mm-hmm. where the young couple. Yes, the bickering. The bickering young couple. Um, the gas but, chamber. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, do we need any more setup for Yeah, here's for just a chunk from the middle of the book where I'm, uh, I think I'm at Buchenwald here. Uh, they all sort of blend into one. And it's just me thinking about this issue that I had. Like I wondered how soon after they got into the camps did the prisoners start to like 
kind of forget all the uh, worries about job and money and status and appearance and how long before all the shit that we waste our lives thinking of Mm -hmm. bled away into sheer survival. So here we go. Very brief. A thought careens in my brain. It all feels wrong. How many victims buried under my feet right now worried that they were frauds, living the wrong life, self-sabotagers and wimps, manipulators and goons and outright swine, along, of course, with heroes, solid family men, and all the prematurely dead in between. Jew to Jew, I'm losing it. But I want to know. I need to. Did these victims, before they were victims, just want to get things right How long after they were thrown in a camp was the privilege of idiot self-obsession stripped away? How long before they realized the futility of all those wasted hours thinking about sex and money? Did their hair look right? Success and failure and all the things that drain the life out of life when life itself is so fucking vulnerable and fragile and easy to pluck away? How long did regret and longing Linger in the face of elemental terrors. Hunger, cold, imminent, undeserving death. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of that passage in Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about worry being like a gas. Yes. It will fill your brain regardless of what it is about. I totally forgot about that passage. I remember circling that and feeling almost mortifyingly like I related to it Yeah, too much. Well, let's talk about worry and self-obsession and the feeling that you're getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've, you've been a guest before on this podcast and we, we talked about your, your childhood, but let's, let's uh, recap some of the broad strokes. <laughs> the highlights? <laughs> some yeah. of the really fun stuff, Jerry. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, you know... Uh, father checked himself out when I was 16 by going into the garage, turning on the gas with the door down. So that happened. Uh, mother, sometimes we thought she was on vacation. Turned out she was getting electroshock at Western Psychiatric. Uh, lifelong depresso and suicide attempter herself. Used to make me like lock the door so I would watch, etc. And uh, that's, uh, you know, that old routine. So that, that was my childhood. And uh, I have a sister who, God bless her, you know, has her own issues, let's just say. And, uh, you know, then there's me, completely normal. Uh, grew up, became a drug addict, uh, clawed my way out of that, got incredibly lucky, had incredible opportunities, many of whom I blew walked away from, made terrible decisions, just because if you never really reconcile yourself to yourself, you're just going to keep sort of recreating all the trauma of your childhood because it's the warm bath of misery that you oh, want to relive. that's such a relive. great phrase. It's, self-sabotage is so easy to camouflage and believe that it's, you know, well, let's talk about self-sabotage sure. in your life and examples where you uh, you sabotage yourself and specifically 
what you thought or you felt as you stood on that precipice of a, yeah. of a larger, more successful life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, I think in my case, it was, it was a kind of arrogance. I was in shock that I was no longer a complete and utter, where's my rent coming from failure. You know, that was very familiar to me. So suddenly I'm plunged into the world of success and, you know, I'm hanging out with, I've gone from like zero to a hundred, hanging out with movie stars and this and that. And you know, I'll give you a specific. I, I had a, a great gig uh, on, of all things, uh, CSI, Las Vegas, early days, Billy Peterson. One of those few jobs, uh, I met him in the Y in Hollywood, uh, in the sauna. And he said, oh, I'm going to be doing a show. And sure enough, he invited me. It was one of those few naked encounters in, <laughs> in Hollywood that resulted in gainful employment for me. And uh, one day I decided, you know, I was talking to a guitar player, a friend of mine. He's like, oh, you're doing that commercial shit? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be commercial. I want to be an artist. And I just sort of walked away from this gig that was like a gift from the gods with a ridiculously lucrative weekly salary for not doing that much. And uh, it was so insane. But and you I were sober at that point. You were off heroin? Oh, yeah. Dead sober. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. I'm sure you've heard this before. But when you're on dope or alcohol or whatever the fuck your uh, mind bender of choice is, you can blame your bad decision on the drugs mm -hmm. or the booze. But when you're an asshole uh, without the drugs, you're just an asshole making asshole decisions, doing asshole things. Uh, so that's just one of many, probably not that fascinating details, but but yeah, stuff like that. You know, one thing I'm, I'm, I'm struck by as, as I read your writing is how relentlessly hard you are on yourself. And, and the feeling that I get is a minimizing of the trauma that you've been through mm. in in um in a way that I understand as an author you know it it's 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 fun to kind of be glib about those things because you can really mine humor in in minimizing those things but um there's a part of me that just wants to give you a hug Aww. and go buddy you're <laughs> you're you're so much more than yeah, well, thank you. I Maybe I was just looking for a giant group hug when I uh, banged out this book. Uh, I mean, I actually went to those camps in 2016 and not trying to look good here, but was kind of so depressed that I couldn't write the book for like four or five years. So when I did, it was like Trump time. So throw that in the mix, a whole other level to be sort of not just personally, but globally depressed. And... Uh, Maybe it was it was glibness. I think it's also you get in the ha one gets in the habit. I think uh, of just using yourself almost as material as a way of perhaps not feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like I was pretty naked in doing that, and I think people can kind of relate. But I have heard before that it's like you know it's almost uncomfortable to read. I was laughing, but I felt like I shouldn't be laughing. Well, I, I think you strike a nice balance, though, of like the mo the passage that you read, where there's no glibness. You're bare, you know, drilling deep down into the into the core of your your struggles, and uh, 
so so it's not like oh Jerry you know you miss you miss the mark here mm-hmm. um, it's just uh, um, I don't know I, I, I get this feeling that uh, that there might be stuff to mine in in doing I don't know trauma therapy or or something like that have you, obviously well, I, you've I been just, to therapy I, I have I haven't gone for years but I just started going back because a friend of mine and podcaster guy recommended EMDR I was just going to which say. is basically I don't I couldn't even tell you what it stands for. I've never been able to Eye movement it. desensitization reprocessing. Like I say, <laughs> took the words out of my mouth. Uh, and as you know, that is about sort of fixating on a trauma. And then they do some buzzing and some tapping and mm-hmm. some uh, noise in your head and earphones back and forth. And I've done it a few times. I'm still trying to get my head around it. My... The woman I live with, who has this major fucking unspeakable trauma, the wo- the woman said to her, I-, "I think you're cured," and and she's like, "It's it's so bizarre. It's it's like my trauma that I obsess on twenty four seven. It's like a phantom limb. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel it now. Yeah. I don't know how it happened, but it, it works. And the oddest thing about it, for being therapy, is it's finite. Yeah." Have you tried it? I have. And what it, do you think? Oh, it was it was profound. There was once it, it took about a half dozen sessions for me to to really feel the effects. And there was one session in particular, as you know, after the session, sometimes you're exhausted. Yeah. And I went home and slept for almost two days. Wow. And then the next time I played hockey, it felt like. I had been the tin man and I'd finally been oiled <laughs> and my limbs felt looser. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was a profound physical uh, difference, which I think speaks to the fact that, you know, trauma gets buried in the cells of our Oh, absolutely. Our and, and she said, you know, you're going to feel physical things. I had this thing where I was sweating so profusely in the office. I came out and it, it smelled like somebody else's sweat, which is kind of gross. But it was like, what the... F-? And I said to her next time, I said, you know, I, I fucking stank. She goes, yeah, you know, like weird, weird, weird shit happens. So uh, yeah. did you have one or two trauma that you focused on or did you... There was a there Because I have a such a general trauma. I couldn't, yes. I couldn't like pick one. Right. Um, there was a few that I, that I focused on. And I also did somatic uh, experiencing, which is... Um, it's kind of, uh, similar to EMDR in that it draws out, uh, you know, the, the, the trauma that may be kind of buried in our mind or our bodies. And, um, and that was a profound experience, uh, and that the, one of the first things that the, that the, uh, somatic, uh, therapist will do is spend weeks kind of, creating a really safe environment and being aware of not only where you are, but um, what your body feels like. And then um, as, you, as you, you know, recount some trauma that happened to you, um, I felt like I was that little kid back mm. in that moment. And and I just came out of me voicing the things that I couldn't voice as that kid. Wow. And it was like I was an 
year old kid wow. again. And she, and she just kept saying, you're here, you're safe, wow. you're here, you're safe. And it was a purging yeah. of, and I had thought, oh, you know, she's got the incense, she's got this, this is a fucking waste of money, this is just a bunch of new age horse shit. Um, but I am willing to try anything. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to, to hear that you that you did, did EMDR. I'm still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I've had like four or five sessions, so I'm oh, still that's so great. getting my feet wet. But like I say, you know, my girlfriend, she had like four or five sessions and that was it. Over and out. Wow. So I don't know. You know, I think my, I'm so slow to trust probably, so it's kind of on me <laughs> yes. for not giving, you know, being, you know, like a junkie, like maybe because I was such a sleaze ball for so many years. I think, right. you know, there's some con being at work here, you know. Yeah. I heard somebody somebody in a in a support group was struggling with the concept of trusting a higher power, and this person said to them, "You didn't seem to have any problem trusting whatever drug was handed through the car window to you." <laughs> so true. Yes, exactly. Yeah, different kind of trust. Right. right. Yeah. You were gonna say. I was going to say that uh, it means a lot that because I know some of what you went through as a kid. So, uh, you know, if it's working for you, that just gives me, you know, gives yeah. me a little more hope. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the greatest gifts that we can have as human beings is curiosity and, and open mindedness. Uh, being a seeker, I think, is one of the greatest gifts you can be it blessed is. with. And it's also, in a way, it's the last addiction we have to conquer was this this addiction to feeling a certain way not a good way right probably a horrible fucking way but you know you're addicted to it yeah you know and, and you got to break that because it's almost like if i let that go mm-hmm. what's going to fucking happen yeah you know I, I feel that way when fall rolls around and there's a melancholy really? not a sadness but a melancholy and i talked about this a, a, a couple of episodes so i apologize if i'm repeating myself but it's exactly like that warm stinky bath that you talked about i know this mm. um and it's uh i don't know it's so it's so specific um and and yet uh there is this odd this odd comfort to it, you know, when you're you're laying down, it's it's late afternoon, the days are getting shorter, the windows open, you can hear life going on outside, you just feel like it's passing you by. And why do I have to be so lazy? Why can't I be like, you know, those other people? Have you been eavesdropping there? on my home? <laughs> so you're talking it. out loud. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mine's a little more violent towards myself, but it's the absolute same thing. But did anything happen in the fall, or is it just I tr- sort of... I, 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 I kind of rack my brain yeah. for that, but nothing really, really comes up. I think it was just you know being raised in a house where dad was a checked out alcoholic, not abusive at all, in, you know, except for the, the neglect, because he was battling his own demons in his in his head and my mom was you know inappropriate and kind of smothering and you know would pull you in with compliments and then stick the back candid compliment knife oh. in so you know kind of kind of that yeah. stuff yeah. um and some medical trauma here and there but it it um i don't know it it's just, you know i'm I'm sure you're familiar with seasonal affective disorder. Of course, yes. yeah. No, there's always a reason. Yeah. 
Now, it's funny you mentioned medical trauma. I had this thing happen because I was like, she's like, well, what trauma do you want to focus on? I'm thinking, well, geez, it's a fun pack. You know, I can, <laughs> I can pick one. But I had this medical trauma. I didn't even think about how traumatic this was. But a couple of years ago, I had back surgery. It's in the book for whatever. I'm repeating it if anybody's read the book. But And it went south, you know, and I started to bleed out. So that I had, instead of two hours, I was five hours on the table. And I wake up and they say, oh, by the way, your bladder died. Wow. And uh, you're in a, if you're wondering why you're in a catheter, uh, you're going to be peeing into a bag probably for the rest of your life. Uh, sorry. You know, there's a 50% chance that, uh, you know, I'm like, what? So I, 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 and I had always made fun of those late night commercials where people are cathing. <laughs> so it's like karma, you know, suddenly I'm the guy, you know, with a bag. And, uh, it was, and it was a shame, you know, just think about it. You're going in there and you got to go to the doctor every week. And there's some young woman you don't know, just grabbing your Johnson and shoving a tube in. And I'm screaming like a little girl. Cause I never, it never didn't hurt, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just on every level. It was just like some horrifically, you know, it was like one of those Orwellian tortures where you think of the thing you fear the most and right. that's what they're going to do to you. Yeah. And, uh, I asked a friend who was a sort of a celebrity type guy and he hooked me up with his doctor at Cedars and he gave me an operation and, you know, uh, saved it after they said it couldn't be saved, which just goes to show you. Uh, but it was so traumatic thinking, I'm just going to walk around with this fucking piss bag hanging on my thigh. And listen, anybody who has that condition, my respect is like, un, you know, massive because it's, it's terrifying. And, uh, you know, knowing it was somebody else's mistake makes it even more traumatic in a way because just the injustice of it all, mm-hmm. like life is supposed to be just. Perfect. So uh, just wanted to share a fun little anecdote <laughs> for the kids. So um, let's, let's talk about the um, one of the things that you share in the book is a, a history of, of philandering and destroying uh, relationships. Um, when did when did that start? You comfortable talking about that? Yeah, I, I was never. I, it's a great word, philandering. Wow. Yeah, I feel like I should be wearing a derby. Uh, <laughs> it's a fantastic word. Yeah. No, I was just always a shit that way. You know, I was just terrible. Uh, I, I I never thought about how I was hurting somebody because it's like you know, well, if, you know, nobody finds out, you know. But of course, you know, thanks to the advent of the computer. Everybody finds out, thanks to the internet. And, you know, they should be found out, in my case. And uh, that's going to sound good, right? The mic tumbling over when I said <laughs> found out. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've just, I was always that guy, you know. It, it, and this is deep into sobriety, you know, when you cannot blame other things. Yeah. You know, I was obviously some kind of sex addiction, needless to say, going out on a limb here, mm-hmm. you know. And... Uh, when you go from zero to a hundred in terms of you're just like a regular schmohawk trying to do what you can do and get what you can get, and suddenly there's people who want to meet you because you've written something or done something and you know and you take advantage of that because you just a man with all that fallibility um, you know there's no defense for it, so i i just I just went with it and uh 
vows of marriage did not seem to make me a better man. Mm-hmm. It just gave me more opportunities to be a terrible man. Several years into uh, my sobriety from drugs and alcohol, uh, I, I found my, uh, you know, uh, the, my old habits creeping back in. Yeah. And uh, a lot of it was the urge to, but there also were some instances. And and it was so depressing because I was like, I thought I thought I had arrived at being the guy I wanted to be. And here comes this old fucking demon mm. that I feel powerless over. And it, boy, you talk about something that puts gas on the fire of your self-hatred. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is some incomprehensible demoralization, but fairly comprehensible because it's pretty much black and white what you're doing and why you're doing it. Unlike you, I never had any illusion that I was some better man, you know? (laughs) I was a guy who didn't do heroin. I didn't, like, you know, open up people's purses and stuff. You know, I mean, I think deep into sobriety, I was still, like, taking a peek at people's, like, medicine cabinets just to see, you know? I mean, that's horrifying. You know, like flushing the toilet when you close it, so at that snap moment, nobody hears. Just to see. And uh, I never took anything, but it's, just, it's like these, I think there's a part, I, I just liked, I like, I'm not going to say the criminal lifestyle, because that makes it sound so lofty. But, uh, you know, I like crossing that line, you know. It, 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 I, I never Excitement was, of it? Yeah, there's something, of you know, anything that you could do where you get caught and you're fucked up, you know, there's something to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like I know people who used to get clean and, and they'd be sort of sober. For, they'd go cop and throw the dope away just to have the rush. Oh, yeah. Of going down and doing it, you oh, know. Yeah. I and, would get high driving back from the dealer's house. Of course, Yeah. Oh my god! Just having it on me. Oh, I'd, I'd, yeah, I, I was with a guy who got so excited. And I won't name his name in the, in the band. He would get so excited going down to cop. He's like a running buddy. Literally, move his bowels in my car. It was not great, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was an old car, but still, right. keep keep posing it down, you know. And he just got too excited just at the prospect of yeah. uh, of getting those balloons, yeah. as they say in L.A. That's where the heroin comes from. I heard somebody say in a support group one time, I'm addicted to oblivion. And I thought, oh, wow, yeah. that is such a great way. Because it doesn't matter That's right. whether it's video games, shopping, sure. heroin, philandering, whatever it is. It, the issue is you don't want to be in your skin. Yeah, I used to say my favorite drug was out. <laughs> Just want to be out. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the the trip to uh, Poland and and Germany. Um, talk about that moment where the young couple was uh, was bickering. Which which uh, museum were you at? I think I, I you know don't get old because your memory your memory slips and I mm-hmm. need to reread the book. But uh, it was a gas chamber. I think it was in Auschwitz, and uh, they were having a quibble about he thought it had been rebuilt. And it wasn't the real experience. This was all kind of fake. And she's like, what difference does it make? You know, and they were having like marriage difficulties. And they were hipsters. And he was very nasal. And they were, you know, trendily dressed. And I, you know, I'm like, what do you say? I'm like trapped in there. And, I, you know, all I'm thinking is like, you know, if I can get him out, maybe I can shove him in an oven, you know, and uh, be one of the first homicides committed at Auschwitz since the place shut down. And uh, it was, it, 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 I mean, I guess the lesson is there's no appropriate behavior anywhere. People are people. I mean, mm. 
the first thing I saw when I got there with people taking selfies. And there's even a, a big poster. There's a, a sign in Auschwitz like no Pokemon. Wow. You know. I mean, I had a horrible selfie moment that happened in the book, you know, where I was mistaken for Michael Richard. Uh, and, the, and, the, and these young, I think, Filipino girls are like yelling, Kramer, Kramer. And, and they're looking at me and they thought... You were Kramer. They thought I was him. And like, you know, a few things happen at once. One, I'm at a concentration camp thinking, God, how creepy is it that I look like Michael Richard? Which is like self-obsession, wholly inappropriate. Two, what is the right response? You know, what would Emily Post say about this when somebody mistakes you for liberty? And three, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And then the people from my tour group see me. So it's just like if we're wired a certain way, I think the point of this ridiculous anecdote is you can almost turn any experience into an exercise in shame, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the truth is, Self-hate really is just narcissism with his pants on backwards. You know, it's, it, it's the same thing. It is. It and is. It's it's same same make thing it about as you. grandiosity. It's still exactly. all about you. Yeah, you make it about you. Make the six million about me. That's a great feeling, you know? <laughs> Talk about... What, what was it? What was the guy's name? Uh, the, the old guy who... Shlomo. What, Shlomo, that's yes. right. He was a survivor and a really complex Interesting guy. fellow. Yeah, he had been in a, in a DP, a displaced persons camp, in Poland when he was 10. Came over in 1930. First time he'd been back. And he loved Trump. And he kept telling me that, you know, as a Jewish guy, I should love Trump because Trump was predicted in the Bible. He was King Cyrus, the Persian king, and he may be a rascal, but darn it, you know, he's, he's good for Israel, you know? And I, I didn't want to argue with this 85-year-old dude, you know? And we became kind of pals, and I sort of rose above, but it's just this, this it's like, I don't know if you ever read Canterbury Tales in high school or college, but you know, we were just a group of strangers who would never otherwise be together. And uh, I just had to sort of check myself, like, am I going to be a dick and start having political discussions with this guy? So I said, yeah, you know, okay. You know, I probably did the patronizing thing. And, uh, yeah, interesting point of view. But he had this beautiful love story with his wife. He, uh, she had dementia. And so about once a month, she, all she did was watch the Home Shopping Network. He would pretend to order her a necklace that she had seen on the Home Shopping Network that he would rewrap so she could unwrap it and think she was getting it for the first time, which is such a beautifully tragic story. It's like, how could I not love this guy? Yeah. I mean, that is love. Talk about the McDonald's incident. Yes, uh, I had an incident, uh, again, where you can turn any incident into something about you, where I was accosted by what I thought was just a group of, I don't know, you know, sort of uh, Auschwitz-adjacent ruffians uh, in Poland uh, who started to beat me up. They were the White Eagles, and I thought they were like the Jets, you know, or the Sharks or something. Turns out they're like a fascist group over there, and they started cursing me out and kind of pushing me around. And rather than get tough, I did what all junkies do, X or current, 
made up a story. He said, oh, you don't understand. I am traveling the world photographing McDonald's, uh, you know, <laughs> for the McDonald's company. I, I am not here to insult you if this is your turf. Just complete ridiculous lying and sort of... And they said anti-Semitic oh, things. Yeah, they st- and, the, and the next thing is they started saying all this... An- I, I could make out one word, Juden. So who comes up and saves me? But this, you know, 80-plus guy, Shlomo, comes rolling up in his mom jeans, like pulled up to his nipples, you know, and his keds. And, uh, you know, he says something to him that it, it shocks them so much. And, you know, I'm asking him, like, and, and they back down. And he's like, heroic, oh, they're, you know, two yids from New York. They're not going to, you know. And I asked him, like, what did you say? And he goes, there's no translation. And I'm like, come on, what did you say? He's like, well, it's, it's, it's something equivalent of... Um, Scabrous piss cake your mother eats, you know. I told you it wouldn't make sense in English, you know. Like, oh, okay, I get the gist, you know. And uh, so I was saved by an 85-year-old man. So as my old sponsor, an old guy who helped me in my support group, uh, Hubert Selby, used to say, uh, you know, don't think of it as somebody helping you. Don't think of it as borrowing money. Don't think of it as... Think of it as giving somebody else the opportunity to be of service. So I like to think I gave that old man the opportunity to be of service, and he was busting his buttons like the rest of the day, and I felt like an idiot. So, Just going to adjust your mic here. All right. Has all that been tainted by mic distance issues? No. no okay. No. Um, any other vignettes from uh, your trip there that kind of stick with you? Well, you know, there's... There's just a million little things like the time, I don't know about you, I don't like to tell people not to do things, but we were in a uh, old cemetery in Krakow and I look over and uh, there is a guy, I think, I think it was Tad from Texas, with, it, with his uh, Nike up on a uh, tombstone and he's tying it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not the deepest experience in the world, but it, it was typical of what, I mean, it takes a lot to appall me, you know, but I was like, Jesus Christ, man, you know, take your fucking foot down, you know? And then uh, in, in another incident of sort of grandiosity, since you had mentioned that, I was at the Buchenwald uh, cafeteria, by the way. Don't even get me started on the Auschwitz cafeterias. You know, the first thing you see when you walk in, you, you expect to have this profound, life-changing, deep, soul-crushing experience, and you see some guy in an I'm with stupid t-shirt hammering a Fanta and a slice of pizza, you know? But that was Auschwitz. It just had a mere snack bar. At Buchenwald, they had a beautiful cafeteria. And I'm walking alongside it, uh, just judging everybody, like, you know, just, you know, mad-dogging people, like, how dare you eat? And I walk right into a plate glass window, uh, crack myself in the skull, start bleeding profusely, and have to skulk back past all the people I've just judged, felt superior to, uh, and put on, you know, some like Buchenwald paper towel on my Buchenwald head head wound, and, uh, you know, sort of skulk back outside. You know, the lesson being, you know, anytime you think you're fucking better than somebody, you know, you're going to the cosmos is going to arrange to prove okay. to prove different. I mean, I, I was a total clown move, but there it is. Talk about it, if you're comfortable. Talk about. Is any question ever good when it's 
<laughs> preceded by if you're comfortable. Yes. Yeah, I am totally comfortable. Bring it on. By the way, I have to share with you, I was kind of tidying up the bathroom before you came over, and I was like, oh, God, there, you know, there's toothpaste on the mirror. And I went, this guy shot heroin on a toilet. Yeah, <laughs> with toilet water, not right. to brag. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm the same way. Yeah, I am the same way. Anybody comes out of the house, I like any it. excuse for somebody to judge me? Of you know, course, they're going to find something. It's they're going to see the real me. I'm going to. I mean, I will find a reason to shame. You know, desert island shame. It'll be there. You're right. But thanks for straightening up. Yeah. Um, you in the book you touch on the pain of having fucked up your marriage and having to be a, a, a kind of a long distance father mm-hmm. to your to your daughter. Yeah. Yeah, it it's a profound pain, but life is such a surprising thing. I'm terrible at marriage, pretty good at divorce. So her mom and I, uh, they live in Texas, are are have a pretty decent relationship. And this child, mysteriously, I don't know where these genes come from, is so happy and just sort of rolls with it. You know, she's got her house set up. Her mom's living with another guy, and it's great. She calls him her stepdad, and she talks to me, and it's fine. And, you know, I can beat the shit out of myself for not, you know, being there enough and, and this and that. But it's like, in her world, she's just cooking with gas. So, you know, kids are so much more resilient, you know, Um I suppose if I were dead honest, I, mean, well, I think she should be a little more affected by my absence. <laughs> I'm not trying to make myself look good here, but this is a happy, I mean, so far, so good. Right. At happy, a certain point, it, it, it's insulting. Yeah. I mean, come on. Get depressed already. Show me that you got my blood. And in how you. old is she now? She's 10. Yeah. You know, rides horses, plays piano, you know, it's Great little life. Give me... I think if, if the people you live with love you, life is going to be good. Yeah. What would you or I know about that? And, but and, from and, what I've read, <laughs> that's like a fantastic thing for a child. And, and I would add, if I can, to that, and you let them love you, which is one of the hardest things, I think, to do for self-loathers. Yes, because part of our job is to talk people out. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's like in any relationship... I think I even do this with books, if, if I'm dead honest, now that I'm sort of thinking hor- horrifically out loud. It just, you do things or put things in to do, just to see if people really love you. Yeah. I'm going to do this. But, you know, you really? You're going to still love me after that? Mm-hmm. Come on. Come on. Uh, because it's so uncomfortable to be loved. And do you think that's because, well, let me ask you, why do you think it's so uncomfortable? I think... On some level, it's funny, I was talking about this in the EMDR. It's like, you know, my father came over when he was 10 by himself. This is a long-winded answer, but there's a reason for it. By himself from Lithuania on a boat because his mother was brought over by, I don't know, some very, very distant relative who wanted to marry her when he was two, but he wouldn't pay for him. So this woman, his mother, abandons him. When he's two for eight years till she can scrape together the money to send for him. And then he comes over by himself, doesn't speak the language. He's in kindergarten at 10, you know, on and on. And, he, you know, he ends up accomplishing a lot in life. But I think 
looking back, he was very quiet, you know, just so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. So I've got that. Then I've got, you know, electroshock mom. And I think we just absorb what we see. Mm. And it's like gravity. You just assume depression, self-loathing, feeling like you're the cause of all this bad in the world. It's, it's, it's beyond the warm bath of misery. I mean, it is just a cellular reality. And it almost feels dangerous. Like, I'm not a guy who quotes the Dalai Lama a whole hell of a lot for a lot of reasons that I will not bore anybody with. But he did say something about, I don't know, 30 years ago. He said, like, happiness is the last radical act of the 20th century. And that's so fucking profound, especially for us, you and I in the self-loathers club. No dues. And it just takes a lot of guts to get over yourself and let go of this super form-fitting, comfortable sort of tunic of, of death that we just are so fucking used to. Do you think it's our brain's way of protecting us from the danger of the unknown? Could be. That's a, that's a great way to look at it in the sense that the unknown is love and care and self-respect. I... And betrayal waiting to spring out of, of the jack-in-the-box. Yeah, which, which we will spend our life trying to induce so that we can feel victimized. I think for, I, I had this revelation. I don't know if it's in the book or not, and it might not be that profound. Like, I don't know that I'm ever going to be like a happy guy, but speaking about my mother, God rest her tormented soul, she had the ability to walk in a room, and suddenly everybody in that room be like, I don't know what happened. I, I just feel like shit. I kind of hate myself. I, I, you know, it was like the world's most annoying superpower. So I don't know that I will ever be happy, but the closest I'm going to get is I don't want to make you unhappy. Mm-hmm. And having a couple of kids, I mean, gives you the opportunity to at least try and infect not just your kids, but anyone. You know, it, it's why I have this bad habit of always, inter- it's very hard for me to be interviewed. I'd much rather talk about the other person, you know, because I just, I don't want to like have a slip and, and do something that is depressing or say something <laughs> that's going to depress somebody, which is pretty much every fifth word out of my mouth. So um, that's that's my little revelation, you know, yeah. no happiness, but I'm not going to make you unhappy. That will be my happiness. Yeah. Are you able to feel moments of peace? Yes, I have. I've had moments of peace. I know they exist. I meditate, you know, I do that. And I, before I started EMDR, I, I realized the best thing for me is just like physical activity, like exercise or whatever, till I blew my knee out recently. And, uh, you know, that would give me peace, you know, just because my body would be at peace, you know. Um, uh, I don't know if it's serotonin or what the hell it is, or endorphins, but... I, I can be at peace. Mostly what gives me peace is work. You know, maybe that's because I feel like I need to earn my spot on the planet. But, uh, you know, at the end of like putting something out there when I feel like I've said something at the end of the day, I, I have a certain kind of peace. But it doesn't come easy and I always have to re-earn it, if that makes any yeah, sense. It makes total sense. Makes total sense, yeah. Anything else you'd like to share before uh, we wrap up? 
just how much I love this show, and I, I and the premise mm-hmm. is so profound because it is nothing but shit you won't talk about on any other show for a variety of reasons. And it's you know it's a brave thing that you do, and uh, it just means a lot. And thank you for having me back, oh, buddy. That means a lot to me. Thanks for coming out, Jerry. Thank you, man. I love talking to him. What a what a kindred spirit. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Um, let's dive into some surveys. Huh? Am I jumping the gun there? Did I catch you off guard? Am I being too forward? Let's do it. This is from the Back in Time survey, filled out by uh, Twisted Sister again. She's getting a little greedy in this episode with all of her surveys. I'm going to have to sit her down. Uh, Share a moment in your life where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. I wish I could tell my 19-year-old self that classical ballet isn't the only game in town. I wish I could have convinced her that she moves like a hullabaloo dancer, not really sure what that means, and that she doesn't need to be a ballerina to succeed in the world of dance. I wish I could get her to feel whole in herself and not keep looking for approval from, quote, masters, unquote. Oh, hullabaloo, she's in her 60s, and uh, hullabaloo, I believe, was a a TV show that was on in the, uh, I think, in the 60s. Kind of a pop music, uh, kind of like American Bandstand, maybe. Take anything from nature and decide who you want to give it to. I would collect all the coyote scat I could find and lay it on the doorstep of the condescending, creepy therapist who only wanted to talk masturbation when I was bereft following an abortion. I don't know. He sounds like a great therapist to me. I think uh, I think you should have stuck with him. What a dick. Wow. Uh, Why did you choose this person in this gift? Because he represents every gross adult male who made my life hell growing up. I hate men in authority who are clueless. Pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you feel, see, smell, and think? One time I was driving to school on the 405 freeway listening to Malcolm Holcomb on my DVD player when I suddenly realized I was feeling happy. No headache, no crying, no anger or frustration. Clear-headed, good weather, traffic not bothering me, and I thought to myself, this must be what happiness feels like. That was around 2003. I've had other moments, but that one floored me for some reason. 
Isn't that weird how can we can remember moments like that? I remember I was about five years sober and I was I couldn't find anybody to go camping with me. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to go by myself. And I was probably about an hour into the drive. And this song came on the radio. It was a Sean Mullins song. I think it was the song Something to Believe in. And all of a sudden, I just felt this overwhelming joy and freedom. And I started like crying, like happy crying. And uh, that was that was like, wow. Uh it's amazing sometimes how like our our brains can surprise us. If you had any superpower, what would it be? I would want to be able to read minds. I would use it to stay away from creeps of all genders. Uh, if you have that superpower, is there anything you're afraid might happen? Uh, and if so, how will you handle that? Well, maybe fuck with the people for the hell of it. And I'm afraid I'd loathe humanity even more. That. Yeah, if you can hear everything that everybody was thinking, eh, that, that, that definitely might affect you. Because I think we wouldn't go, well, that's just an intrusive thought they're having in their, in their brain. You'd think, oh, no, that person really wants to throw a baby in front of a bus. This is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Any Mouse. And uh, he writes, this moment uh, is from fall of my junior year of high school. It was the Friday of a home football game, and I was on the varsity team. I was also in the band and was coming out of the band room and randomly ran into my girlfriend in the hallway and had a brief, pleasant conversation and a hug before heading to my next class. As I walked down the hall, I had this realization that I could be completely happy and content to just relive this day for the rest of my life due to the sense of completeness I had. I felt like a valued member of the football team, in parentheses, which was doing well. I was very popular with my classmates in band. I was doing well in school. Football practice meant I was exercising regularly. I was dating my first real girlfriend, and I was held to be responsible and reliable by friends and family. Looking back, I also realized that it was also due to pressure from college and career choices being still distant, distant and the relative newness of the relationship uh, meant uh, newness of the relationship meant took some pressure about interpersonal and intimate relationship issues away. There might be a typo in there, but I think I think we understand what you're saying. Thank you, thank you for that. And you know what? It's also nice to read a survey uh, from somebody who is popular in in high school. I think the bulk of this audience is uh, people who uh, high school was an agonizing experience for. Uh, this is from the Back in Time survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Bare Naked Emotional NDN. And uh, share a moment from your life. You wish you could go back in time. And he writes, at any point growing up, the environment you are in is not normal. Nobody is teaching you love and you will need to learn how to be human on your own. Take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. The calm in the city on a snowy day when nobody is driving around and all the sounds are dampened by the blanket on top of everything. I'd like for both of my parents to feel this when dealing with me so that I could have also learned it then instead of only feeling chaos. That's such a beautiful one, that that silence of the blanket of snow. It's such a... But for people that live in the north or the or the Midwest, you know that you know that feeling the first 
the first snow of the year. It's such a it's such a great moment. And the opposite end of the spectrum, that snow in late March or early April when you thought winter was done. It's like, oh my God, I got to shovel the fucking driveway again. Uh, why did you choose this person and this gift? Because I'm so often consumed with rage and I wish I could turn that feeling on at demand. Pick a positive moment in your day. Uh, my coworker making and sending me a TikTok of some of the fun times we've had over the last two years. Even if it's a coworker, it made me feel like someone enjoys being around me. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself AP. And he writes, My therapist had me taken to the emergency room for a suicide evaluation. I have survived anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts for more than 30 years. Uh, And then parentheses and listen to the podcast for 10 of those. So it didn't surprise me when, seven hours later, they discharged me with just a paper reminding me to keep going to therapy. A few days later, I got a robocall from the corporation that operates the hospital asking me to take a patient satisfaction survey about my evening in the psych ward. Ironically, this bit of amusement is the most helpful thing they did for me. That is fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, This is from the Back in Time survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Lost in the Woods. He's filled out a few of our surveys. A moment, you wish you could go back. He writes, a 14-year-old me would sure need a guiding, loving hand. I would say, Woods, be aware of what you're letting yourself think. Take care of yourself better and that your dad and mom are not bad people. They're just as lost as you are. Take care of them too. Take anything from nature. Who would you want to give it to? I would give my great-grandmother a rose. Why? to make up for the fact that I didn't hug her on her deathbed because I was scared. Oh, that's sad. But I get it. You know, I, I I have a hard time admitting this, but when my dad was dying of cancer, you know, I was living here in Los Angeles and he was back in Chicago. And I did not, I feel like I was a bad son because I only went back and visited him maybe, uh, well, not maybe once, just once. Uh, and I feel to this day, I feel guilt about that. And, but I think there was a part of me that was scared that didn't want to be around suffering. And, um, that's hard. That's a hard one to let go of. Pick a positive moment in your day, driving home from my daughter's eighth birthday party, listening to music and dancing in the car. If you had a superpower, what would it be? The power to stop time. I would probably steal money and cause mischief. I know it's immoral, but hey, I have superpowers. I would probably try to help those less fortunate. Thank you for those. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself disjointed. And they write, I love floating in a calm ocean. I love warm bread with honey butter. I love ice on my face and neck on a hot day. I love when my grandson hugs me. And I love being near a horse. That's a good one. I mean, those are all good, but uh, being near a horse. Yeah, there's something about horses that's just so 
don't know. Makes you feel a certain way. You know, one of the things I love is after you go on a, a horseback ride is when you get off and how you feel so short and your legs feel so so weird, so like bent. Uh, this is from the same survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself No Name Thursday and uh, share a moment from your life. I wish I could go back uh, when I was around age five or six when I felt so alone in the chaos of my home and tell that little girl she would be okay, that she is stronger than she thinks, that someday her life will be filled with so much love that she will be strong enough someday to heal herself. Take something from nature, who would you give it to? I would like to give some cool rocks to my dad if my dad were a little boy again. Why? It seems like something he would like as a kid. He is definitely on the spectrum, but it was the 50s and 60s and no one knew what was wrong with him, just that he was quiet and sensitive and probably very different. I know his parents loved him in his own way, but I have to think that the reason he grew up to be an abusive, lonely, selfish alcoholic was partially because he was trying to fill a void in his life, some absence of love and acceptance that he never felt as a child. I can feel pity and and empathy for the child he was, and I can feel sorry that he didn't get what he needed, even though I can't forgive the adult version of him for what he did to us. I love the... the, um, First of all, I love the honesty of that, and I love the embracing the complexity of two seemingly disparate things can be happening at the same time, that one doesn't cancel out the other, that he was both a victim and an abuser. Pick a positive moment in your day, taking a walk in the morning, enjoying the sunshine as it comes over the mountains. That's a nice one. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, and this is filled up by a woman who calls herself Copper. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, she says. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. I don't remember when it started, but an uncle would show me adult and child porn. He never touched me, but did groom me into taking photos of myself naked. I started avoiding him when I began to understand what was happening around age 12. Uh, She has been emotionally abused. She writes that she's not sure if she was physically abused. She writes, my dad was mostly emotionally abusive, but I do remember a few times being young and working on homework and him grabbing me by the wrist so hard that my hands wouldn't work to make me right. Spanking isn't considered abuse, but damn that belt. His game is making sure we all know that we are the worst things and that that he's ever had the displeasure to be around. Everything I've ever done is wrong. None of my siblings or my mom could do anything right either. He used to tell us kids he wanted to kill himself because we made his house such a mess, he was so embarrassed. My mother was physically abused as a child, so not being beat up is her version of a good relationship. I guess I became parentified when my little sister was born. I was almost 13. My mom would have me stay up at night and watch the baby while she and my dad smoked crack. She would come out of the bedroom occasionally to check on us, smoke a cigarette with me, and maybe tell me some stories about their sex life, her childhood abuse slash rape or other shit an adult shouldn't say to a kid. But then during the day, he would call my mom a crack whore and say she's spending all this money on crack. As I got older, I wanted to protect more, but it seemed that the harder I tried to protect my mom, the harder she clung to him and his abuse. 
I listened to her every day for years, telling me how she had been broken down that day. She would cry, and all I could do was listen and try to convince her to leave. I wanted to make it stop so badly, but she refused to leave. And maybe that's why I did nothing the day she tried to die. The only way I saw I could protect her was to just watch as she swallowed handful after handful of Excedrin. She lived. He laid into her on the way to the hospital for being a selfish bitch. She's still with him, and she still defends the shit he does. Wow. Positive experiences with the abusers. When I was really young, me and my dad would watch the Animal Planet together, but that's it. I don't have much memory from my childhood, really, and that's the only good memory of him I have. He never went to any of our school events or games, even. Mm, You know, I got to say, I think watching Shark Week cancels out being an abusive crack addict. Darkest thoughts. I'm so sad I didn't get a childhood, and I long for the person I could have been without so much drama. Trauma is supposed to make a person stronger, better, more empathetic, but I haven't found meaning to my suffering. I'm so ashamed to be so weak. Also, since I was sexualized so young, oh, also since I was sexualized so young, I messed around with a couple of my female friends through enter through elementary school and now I feel like I really hurt a bunch of people and hate myself so much for it. Well, what if it's time to forgive yourself for that because you were a kid and you were traumatized and, you know, you you write trauma is supposed to make a person stronger, better, more empathetic, but I haven't found meaning to my suffering. Have you tried connecting with other people? around the shared subject of trauma and suffering because you might find meaning in that. Just a thought. Uh, Darkest secrets. I have a habit of enjoying scat porn in the parentheses. I know, gross. I don't know what it is about it, but it really gets my rocks off. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I love knife play, but never found a partner that would cut me. I really want to be tied up, blindfolded, and feel a blade slicing into my skin while getting fucked. I feel my internalized kink shaming, making me feel like a freak. Oh, I feel my internalized kink shaming, make making me feel like a freak. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could make my mother admit the hell she put us through. She acts like she's a victim who did the best she could, and even if that's true, she never attempted to protect us, and that really sucks. But that wouldn't really solve anything, I guess. Yeah, man, the the insanity of wanting someone in our life to see the truth and to validate our experience is so can be so crazy-making. Have you shared these things with others? Some things with my therapist, but mostly no. I can't stand emotional vulnerability. How do you feel after writing these things down? Embarrassed and revealed. Um, I want to thank you for for sharing all of those things. And, you know, being able to share that um, in writing, I think is a good start to being, you know, more emotionally vulnerable. Because I think everybody that just heard me read that is thinking that sounds like a really nice sensitive person who deserves love 
Uh, and then finally, and we're going to put a little, uh, a little music underneath this one and, uh, and go out with it. Um, this is from a struggle in a sentence survey. And this is filled out by a person who refers to themselves uh, as it's right behind me, isn't it? And uh, they don't identify as um, any particular gender. And they don't say what their struggle is, but the snapshot from their life is, uh, is what I wanted to read. There were moments in my childhood, primarily in social situations, where I would be overcome with a sense that I was inherently a joke, shameful in my existence, that it was pathetic for me not to have been aware of that before someone had pointed it out. Moments where I came to know that my thoughts and feelings were not only laughable, but deeply incorrect. Moments where I felt so alone, for I felt I was being actively hated and I was in so much pain that I needed to desperately reach out and beg for help. But the only person there to claw at for relief was the person who just told me that I was nothing. Moments where I felt like I was falling through darkness and I needed the person who had just ground me into dust to teach me how to breathe again. But they wouldn't because they knew something about me that I didn't. And so I would just keep falling. That feeling visited me again recently. I've been working on a mural that I was commissioned to paint, and I was really struggling with it. After I'd smeared white paint over the work that I'd done that I hated, and after I yelled at my mom over the phone for offering me suggestions to a problem that was much simpler than the end of the world, I sat on the plywood scaffolding built to ensure my safety, which, in the depths of my depressive episode, I no longer care about, and I gripped my head in my hands, and I spiraled. I squeezed my skull between my palms, like a foot over the edge of the bed to stop the spins, and that feeling came over me again, pitch black and heavy, and there was nothing to do about it but to let it envelop me, to play music that would feed it, and to let it take me so that my brush strokes became brash and violent to slather paint over my previous mistakes like covering up a murder. I let the music and the dark feelings guide my hand. And I thought about how, as a child, I'd once slipped in wet shoes on the hardwood floor and put my knee through the drywall in the hallway. How even as my father picked me up and carried me to a soft place, all I could do was think about the damage I'd just done to our home and scream, I hate myself, I hate myself until my mother, horrified, yelled back, stop saying that. I still don't remember if I'd actually been hurt. When I came out of my fugue state, the result of my work was something that with a little tweaking, I may be able to proudly sign my name on. And I cleaned my brushes, and I drove home through a little town with a church whose sign read, Drive safe, you're worth it. And I saw signs on stakes that were hammered into the ground with the words hot fresh cider and honey for sale, hand painted in white. The four, the number four in honey for sale, really got me for some reason. And I thought about how someone nearby must keep bees and apple trees and how one day they must have thought, I simply have too much sweetness. Maybe I can sell some for a little extra spending money. And how they might have spent an afternoon nailing wood to stakes and looking for a can of paint 
to make their announcement with him. How maybe they walked with their signs to that corner by the gas station, and after pounding the stakes into the ground, they walked away feeling a sense of accomplishment and hope that someone might stop by for some cider. And my tears fell for the pure humanness of it all and for the sweet possibility of honey for sale. Thank you so much for that. It's really beautiful. And uh, to anybody who's out there and who's struggling, just never forget that uh, there is hope out there. We just need to find our people. And, uh, and you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Thank you.